And we have just tonight and next week left, and we'll have completed our 10 weeks in the Committed Marriage series. Next week I will not be here. Pastor Matt will lead the discussion time at the end of the DVD session that uh, Paul Tripp will do. But tonight we have session 9 on page 19 in your notes, so if you want to take a look there, and those are notes that you can take along with the DVD portion that will start in a bit. For the stuff that I've been saying, there are no notes. If you care to take any, then you can do them on the back side of page 18. And we have been going through looking at six commitments of a reconciliation lifestyle. And we've seen five of those six. Tonight we'll see the sixth. I just quickly am going to remind you of what the first five are. I'm going to go through these slides quickly. You won't have time to write them down. If you've been here in the past, you probably already have them. If you haven't, I'd be happy to give you these slides so that you can add that to your notes if you're so inclined. But the first commitment is to give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. We'll come clean and deal honestly with our sin, weakness, and failure. And the second commitment is to make growth and change our daily agenda. We will work together to build a sturdy bond of trust. We'll commit to building a relationship of love. And then the fifth one that we saw a couple of weeks ago is we'll deal with our differences with appreciation and, and grace. Now tonight we're going to look at the sixth of these six commitments of a reconciliation lifestyle, and that is we will work to protect our marriage. Work to protect our marriage. And the key word there is work. That in order to protect our marriage such that it flourishes, it is going to require effort. It's going to require work on our part. And so let me start out my portion of this by asking you, what is it, do you think, that keeps us from putting forth effort, intentional effort, what keeps us from working on our marriages? Well, one thing for us to consider is that uh, we sometimes don't work on what's going well. So if it's already going well, we think we don't have to work on it for it to continue to go well. And that's one of the reasons that marriages start out well, but don't necessarily end well. In fact, pretty much, I don't know of any exceptions to this, although I'm sure if I looked it up on the Internet, I could find... You know, you find people who had an argument, somebody killed their spouse on their honeymoon or something like that. But for the most part, marriages start out well. That's why you got married. And they started out well, and they remain well for some period of time, shorter or, or longer. But things that are going well don't necessarily, we think, require maintenance and the effort and the work necessary to keep them going well. And so we can begin to coast. With anything that's going well, you can just coast in it. When I was in seminary, Dr. McCune used to talk about pastors who coast in ministry. You just get to a certain point, and you feel like everything's going well, and I've kind of put in my time, and now I'm just going to ride it out until the end of my life, the end of my, my ministry. And you can think about people who 
think that business can go that way. I remember a Wall Street Journal commercial years ago, and there was a middle-aged business executive who said, I used to think that you work hard for the first several years, you finally get that corner office, and then you can sit back and take it easy. And he said, I realized that I can't take it easy. There are lots of people looking to take my, my position and shove me out. But that idea of just at a certain point, things are going well, and then I can just ride it out. I don't need to put the intentional effort and work into it. It's something that applies to a lot of areas of life, including, I think, marriages. And so, what are the signs that you might be coasting in your marriage? And I'd like to give you some signs of marital coasting. One is, uh, I'll explain that, visual lethargy. Lethargic, you know, not, just uh, not, uh, not engaged. And not engaged visually as you used to be. To put it another way, you get to a point that you stop seeing what's there. More specifically, you stop seeing who's there. In your, in your spouse. So think of it this way. If you get a new job, most of us have had this experience. I get a new job, I'm going there for the first time, driving there, and I'm paying attention to every turn and every landmark because I'm engaged in this. It's got my full uh, attention. It's new, it's, it's exciting, and uh, so I want to know all about it and make sure that I can take the right route, get there on time, do a good job, all of, all of that. And so you're careful when you first start for that first few days, that first week or so, but then you're working that job for a few years, and how many have had this experience? You go to work in the morning, you pull in the parking lot, and you cannot retrace your steps in your mind. How did I get here? I've, I've done that. And my office is only eight minutes from my house. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Now, I used to have to drive an hour through all kinds of traffic, hour each way. And when I would get there, you were just so, just autopilot. So this visual lethargy can apply to our marriages as, as well. I'm on autopilot. What I used to actually look at intently and, and notice and comment on and appreciate, now it's just part of the woodwork. It's just part of the scenery. And so I don't see what's there. More importantly, as I say, I don't see who's there. Those are signs that we're coasting in our, in our marriage. Visual lethargy. Here's another one. Uh, habit inconsistency. That seems like a contradiction. If it's something I do habitually, then I usually do it consistently. But uh, it's something that you start out in the habit of doing, but then that habit breaks off. That's what's being said here. And so think of the illustration of getting a, a new car. Or do we have any bike? We've got, got any bikers here? Get a, new, get a new bike. And you're paying, you're paying complete attention to all the details necessary to maintain that car or that, or that motorcycle. So you get a new vehicle and you, you establish some habits early on of making sure it's maintained and, and cared for. I remember when uh, we got 
the one new vehicle we've ever bought. We bought one new new vehicle. All the rest of them have been somebody else had them first. But I remember the one new vehicle that we made the mistake of buying. And, uh, and I determined that I'm going to take care of this one in ways that I haven't taken care of the, of the other ones. And we have a dirt road just down the one end of our, our street. I'm never driving on that dirt road. And I actually didn't drive on that dirt road with the new vehicle for several weeks. It might have been a, a couple of months. But after that, I got tired of taking the long way. The thing started to get dirty. You know, it started to look lived in, all of that. So I don't care about it much anymore. And so you stop with that care that you started in the habit of doing in order to maintain it, in order to make sure that it has everything it needs. Later, you start to neglect. And that's a sign that you're coasting in your marriage that you're not looking to provide what's necessary in order to maintain, not only to maintain, but to improve the relationship. Impatience. It's another indication that we're in marital coasting mode. We want it changed and bettered and improved now. And if it's not improved now, then I'm just going to ride it out. If it's not improved in the time frame that I want, if it's not arrived at where I want, then I'm just going to coast with it. Paul's going to say this, I think, next week, but uh, he says in the book that accompanies this series that, that, God, that God wants the process to be part of the change that the change that God wants is a process, not an event. And we want it to be an event. We want it to be a magic bullet. That's true in our own lives, in spiritual growth, and it can be true for us in our relationships as well. So we're impatient. We want to see it now. If we don't see it now, then we stop putting the work into it. And you think about that, friends. And some of you are in that situation. It hasn't changed the way or as quickly as you would like, and so you've sort of thrown in the towel and you're coasting with it. So here's another sign of marital coasting. It's when we respond to what's going on in the marriage regularly with discouragement related somewhat to the impatience one. It hasn't changed as quickly as I, I would like. And so I now respond to every overture for change with discouragement. It ain't going to change. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. Or respond to the, the next trial, the next obstacle, the next difficulty that arises in the relationship with discouragement. Now, now hear this. The reason we do that is because we are putting our hope for change in the other party rather than in God. You will become discouraged if your hope for change in the trials of your relationship is placed in the other party. But you should never become discouraged if you place your hope in God. God can do this. And further, God will guarantee change you in the process of obeying Him and joyfully serving Him 
even if the other party, which you can't control, doesn't change. So you know you're coasting if you find yourself responding regularly to what's going on in the marriage or overtures on the part of your spouse with discouragement. And then last, you're coasting if you find yourself in your marriage dining with the devil. Now what do I mean by that? You all remember in Ephesians 4 that the Bible commands uh, do not go to bed while you are still angry. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. And then it says, do not give the devil a foothold. Well, those that are involved in the other four things that I've listed and are coasting are not only giving the devil a foothold, you're inviting him to the table. And you're encouraging him to be a part of your relationship. Neglect, now hear this, neglect in relationships that need to be worked on, maintained, that require effort to be put forth, that neglect will be an opening for Satan to enter and he will exploit that neglect. And so one of the reasons that we arrive at the places we do in our marriages after five years or ten years or fifteen years is because that's five or ten or fifteen or whatever number of years most of which has been autopilot and neglect. And if that's the case, it doesn't remain the same, does it? It gets worse. It builds. All of the slights now, all of the difficulties, all of the arguments are, in, are intensified. And then, all it requires is an opportunity for somebody to have a way out. And they'll take it. And you see that happen in marriages. Now, dear friends, ain't nobody here an exception to that. Nobody. Every last one of us has to put forth the, forth the effort daily, regularly, to see that our marriages are strong and improved. Failure to do that looks like what I have on the screen. And can and often does lead to the disillusion of the marriage. All right, we're going to have 25 minutes from uh, Paul in his uh, session tonight, page 19 in your notes, session 9. You've got uh, some blanks on the right side along the slides that he's going to be showing where you can take notes, and then we'll summarize after he's finished. Page 20. And you see the key points at the top that Paul talked about. In order to love others as God intends, I must worship God as creator and as sovereign. In worshiping him as creator, I recognize that God has purposefully made us different. And in worshiping him as sovereign, he's purposefully placed us together. And he went through his story with his wife Luella and how it is that they came together from Toledo and Cuba. And most of us didn't come together from such a distance, but still, if you think about how you got together, there are a lot, there are a lot of interesting <coughs> stories in that. And I have one. 
God, uh, God brought Kim to downriver from a little village in Michigan called Byron. And her family uh, moved here so that her dad could take a job. And we wound up at the same school. And I knew who she was and she knew who I was, but we had never spoken with each other. And it wasn't until after high school that I was encouraged by a friend to give her a call. I think she's, uh, I think she's back home from college and you ought to call her and ask her out. And I did. And so when I called her, I said, uh, hey, it's me, do you remember me? And she said, with no enthusiasm, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, some of us are going to be going out uh, next weekend, and I w was wondering if you would like to come. And this was her response. I think we're having a family reunion. <laughs> Now, I'm a bit, I'm a little bit of a planner, and I'm thinking family reunions take more than 10 days to put together. So you're either having one or you're not. And so I say to her, when will you know if you're having a family reunion? And she said, I should know in a couple of days, which I found out later was, don't ever call me again. That's what that, that's what that meant. But I was too stupid to know that. I called her. And I said, so, are you having a family reunion? <laughs> and her answer was, yes, so, and then her voice just tailed off like, so, get lost. <laughs> but I persisted and I said, why do I think if you weren't having a family reunion, you still wouldn't want to go? And her answer was, well, I, I think I would. And I said, what makes you think you would? And then she started to lay out, you had a reputation in high school. And I'm not sure I want to go out with the likes of you. And so I began to lay out my resume. <laughs> I'm becoming a pastor. <laughs> now prior to that, I had never thought about being a pastor, but I made it up on the spot. And anyway, I convinced her to go out with me and the rest of the sisters. But everybody's got a story, right? And how did God bring these, these people together? You know, Kim comes from this small village and big family and everybody's a Christian. And so her family is kind of like Christian, Ozzy, and Harriet, the Nelsons, if you remember. And my family is sort of like the Adams family. <laughs> really, we bring it together and she's getting to know my family. And all right, now who's with who? And who used to be with who, and all of the breakups, and all of the hang-ups, and all of the substance abuse, and all of the stuff that she's never been exposed to. So two completely different backgrounds coming together in God's sovereignty and in His goodness. And so we could multiply, multiply those, just like Paul has said. So let's look at the discussion questions. Briefly, how does worshiping God as creator help me to love others? Well, I'm seeing God as the, the creator, and I'm worshiping him for his creative abilities and his creativity. And that in turn then causes me to appreciate what he's created. The personalities, the physical attributes, the unique qualities that he has put into this person that he's placed in my life. 
And what is God's purpose in making us different? He's made us different, the Bible teaches, to complement each other. You know, I need the different kind of personality and qualities that Kim has. And she needs the different personality and qualities that I have to complement each other, to sharpen one another. And so that we can display God's diversity. Have you ever considered that we are to mirror the image of God? But the image of God is diverse. I mean, the, the God in whose image we are made is one God in three, in three persons. And so that's why Genesis 1.26 says, And God created them male and female. In his image he created them, male and female. To be unified but also to be diverse. How does worshiping God, not only as creator, but how does worshiping God as sovereign, number three there, help me to love others? Well, it reminds me that everything happens according to his plan. And people who are a part of my life are there because of God's plan, not by accident. And so it is not that the best thing I can do is get rid of these people in my life. Or the best thing I can do is get away from these people in my life. The last couple of weeks on Sunday mornings in our series through James, I've mentioned uh, that there are these three things that you can do in relationship with other people. And this context, I think, makes it uh, worth repeating. Does anybody, anybody remember the three things that you can do? Oh, really? Oh, I can die and go to heaven. <laughs> go ahead. Very good. And, oh, right. Oh, lovely. And I just made fun of you guys, didn't I? That was Marcy Hunter, whose marriage, I said, needs desperate help. But now she's a saint. For having said that you can do these three things, you can compare, contrast, or consider. You know, you look at uh, somebody else and you can compare. You can compare what it is that they do or how it is that they are better than you. Or you can contrast. You can say, what is it that I do better than them? Or how is it that I'm better than them? But what you should do is neither of those. You should consider that a good God and a sovereign God has placed this person in my sphere of relationship. And he has a good purpose in this. And consider how it is now that God wants me to serve this person and become more Christ-like as a result of this relationship. So rather than regularly comparing and contrasting, we ought to regularly be considering how it is that God intends to use this relationship. As Paul said at the end, for my good, for the other party's good, and for his glory. And then fourth, what is God's purpose in placing us with our spouses? And it is, as we said under number two, he brings us into relationship with people in order for us to complement and to sharpen one another, but especially in the intensity and the closeness of the marriage relationship, for through that relationship, us to become mature in Christ. 
So yes to sharpen, yes to complement, but that's all for an ultimate end, for us to be become like Christ. And so as you look at the application section, just think about think about this. What aspects of your spouse's hardwiring have you been critical of that you need to accept as God's creation? And I know, in a crowd this size, that there have been people who've been critical of their spouse because of the way they are. Your personality, your likes and your dislikes don't measure up because I've spent my time comparing and contrasting rather than considering. And as a result, I've been criticizing. And that's been hurtful to your spouse. And so, having had it pointed out, if it's true that it is not as God desires, and if it is true that as a result the other party has been harmed, then what should you do? Well, we had six commitments over these nine weeks to a reconciliation lifestyle. The first of those was that we will commit to regularly coming clean and confessing and asking forgiveness. And so this is the time, dear friends, to put that into practice. You go to your spouse and you say, as a result of what Paul has said, I've come to realize that this is what I've been doing. And I see you more clearly as the gift from God that you are for me. And I want to appreciate our differences rather than denigrate those. And I want to ask you to forgive me for my pomposity. Say that, pomposity. <laughs> Not really my arrogance, you know. For acting like you've got to be like me in order to be accepted. So please forgive me. What a great thing if we would have some couples who would reconcile in that way out of this series. All right, well, I encourage you to look at the remainder of the application section together. And then, just between the two of you, do what's said there. And then you've got the Psalm 139, which most of you are familiar with, speaks of being fearfully and wonderfully made. By who? By our God. Let's pray and ask God to help us this week. Father, we thank you for this series. We thank you for our brother Paul and the wisdom that you have given him, the gift, the gift that you have given him to communicate your truth. We thank you for allowing us the freedom to be here, but giving us the desire to be here. That comes from you. So I thank you for these dear friends who have come these nine sessions now. And we ask, Lord, that you'll help us to pull this together and to put it into practice, not just to hear it, not just to be entertained by it, but to actually put it into practice in our marriages. I pray this week that there would be measures of reconciliation taking place in the marriages represented here as sin is confessed and forgiveness is sought and granted. And Lord, we pray for next week's final session to be able to pull it all together, be reminded of what we've seen over these nine weeks together. And as a result, our marriages will be stronger 
and that they will achieve the purpose for which you have sovereignly brought us together. Go with us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.